Stephen. This is my colleague Stephen Grant, who is head of voice and head of the early music studio at the Melbourne Conservatorium of Music in Melbourne University. And this is my colleague Katie Abbott Kasvinitsa, who is a composer and a lecturer in music also at the Conservatorium. And my name's Jane Davidson. I also work at the Conservatorium. What we're here tonight to do is to share with you our lolly bag selection of this story of humans and text and song. We're all aware that from first moment of breath until last moment of death, we not only use our voices to express our emotions, but we use it for a sense of community and joining people together. Every rite of passage, every ritual within our life is marked with song. They argue that the mother-infant interaction is something that's a kind of proto-musical behavior as mother and child sing song together. So we have songs for war, 
songs for love, songs to help us work harder, songs to make us do things faster and stronger. How do we use the voice? Each culture uses the voice in a completely different way. The poetry is sometimes more musical in one language than in another language. How is that reflected when poem becomes song? Of course, we can't go in detail in any kind of chronology here. What we're going to do is pick and mix some elements that we have thought about ourselves and deliver those to you. So we hope that this talk will just stimulate your interest and you'll also hear some lovely and very diverse singing. Thank you very much. Uh, the pieces that I've chosen for this talk are made up of music that was originally intended for private recreation or private meditation setting of poetry by Philip the Chancellor was the first song presented here this evening. Philip, who lived from 1165 to 1236, uh, that would have been something, was the Chancellor of the University of Paris during a very turbulent period and was also a renowned poet, thinker, and preacher. He has quite remarkably some 80 poems still exist that are attributed to him, including the one we heard this evening. Civis vera frui luce is a religious song in the form of a sequence, a meditation on the images of the cross and the crucifixion. It suggests, like many medieval poems of the time, that contemplation of that ultimate Christian act of sacrifice will lead to healing and victory. The music itself, perhaps composed by Philip, though we don't know, also possesses a meditative, sinuous quality which seems to me to be particularly well suited to the idea of private contemplation or devotion. Music and text at this time were understood to be related in a kind of harmonia or harmony, but they don't seem to interact in the way we have come to understand that relationship in more recent centuries. Also, the lack of any clearly notated rhythm and the flowing melody lends the piece a timeless quality the same one might experience with Gregorian chant. The second song, Je ne fais deuil, is a secular three-part work, unusually written for three equal voices by Guillaume Le Rouge, a Franco-Flemish composer who flourished in the 1450s at the court of Charles d'Orléans. The piece is a good example of what was perhaps music for the chamber, private music to be sung for an aristocratic patron. In this piece, the lover or poet dwells on his rejection or unrequited love, a subject quite common to the courtly lyric of several centuries. The music is certainly dolorous, full of strong dissonances and a tight interweaving of the parts. The text reads, if I am doleful, then no one should blame me as I don't believe there's been a soul unhappier than I ever. What's more, being doleful really isn't enough. By all rights, I ought to kill myself just to put an end to my torment. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. 
17th century saw a strengthened interest in the relationship of words to music. Composers tried to capture the communicative force of language through the new forms of recitative and opera, and harmony was also put to the service of verbal expression. The composer who to us today stands as the shining example of this time was the Italian Claudio Monteverdi, the composer of what is considered the first great opera, Orfeo, but also the Vespers of 1610 and his nine books of madrigals. He also wrote an opera, Ariana, now lost, though the great central lament of the opera did survive, the well-known Lamento d'Ariana. Monteverdi said that in Ariana he discovered a natural means of imitating the passions. Two years after the opera, 1608, Monteverdi composed a set of madrigals based on this lament. It shows him at his finest, now using five sustained voices to underline the harmonic intensity of Ariana's emotional turmoil.
song from Schubert's best-known song cycle, Der Winterreise, or A Winter's Journey. It is a haunting song in which the poet describes a beggar musician playing a hurdy-gurdy barefoot in the icy streets. The beggar has become a reflection of the poet's own inner desolation and loneliness. The work is hauntingly simple and its originality set it, sets it apart. There is really no other song like it from this period. A friend and benefactor of Schubert's, Josef von Spaun, relates this anecdote. Come to Schober's today. I shall sing you a cycle of frightening songs, said Schubert. I am curious to see what you will say, what you will all say to them. They have taken more out of me than was ever the case with other songs. He then sang the whole Winterreiser with great emotion. We were taken aback at the dark mood of these songs. To that Schubert only said, I like these songs better than all the others, and you will like them too.
Stephen's first song, which was played with a hurdy-gurdy accompaniment, and the Lyreman is indeed the hurdy-gurdy player. Um, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about nostalgia and move on to the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, and focus very briefly on the works of Claude Debussy. Debussy was inspired by many, many things. The Orient, gamelan music from Indonesia, Watteau, he was very inspired by the music of the past, or at least Paul Verlaine's depiction of 17th and 18th century pastoral scenes. Ancient Greek poetry was something that he used, allegedly, um, as rewritten or represented by Pierre-Louis. This is quite a tale. Debussy's sound world makes a representation using scale systems from other cultures, and he opens up tonality for the first time, using rhythm in a very fluid and flexible way, really trying to get to profound psychological interventions, really trying to understand the mind. Pierre-Louis claimed that he had found uh, the writings of a 6th century BC Greek poetess called Bilitis in Cyprus. He even fabricated some archaeological references to someone having found these, when in fact what Pierre-Louis had done was he had written some poetry, some text, in the style of Sappho. So Debussy took these ideas 
and presented them in the famous three songs, Chansons de Bilitis. The actual collection by uh, Pierre-Louis himself was 143 poems. So imagine this sort of nostalgia for the past and ancient Greece when in fact it's something quite newly written. So what I would like to do is just to tell you a little bit about some of the musical effects and languages that Debussy used for the voice. When he wrote his opera Pelias and Melisande, it was really the first time at this critical point at the bridging of the centuries where we were hearing the sung line in the rhythms of speech and no longer moving from the 19th century style of the big showcase aria. We were looking at text and words and word painting and melody all blending into one. So um, if I were to read you, I'm not going to sing very much of this at all, but if I just read you the words in French, il m'a dit, he said to me, cette nuit j'ai rêvé. It's in fact last night, but this night I dreamt. So he sets it to sing it. Il m'a dit, cette So you see already he's following the rhythms of the words. I had around, um, sorry, I had your hair, your tress, your chevelure around my neck. J'avais ta chevelure autour de mon cou. So you can see the way in which this word painting is happening. And as I say, the rhythms are so much more in line with the speech and flexible, and the tempo rises and so on and so forth. So these were experiments going on right at the turn of the century. And only a decade later, this was completely blown open by Arnold Schoenberg. Some of you may have heard his name. He was somebody who introduced really into classical music a new form of language, a harmonic language, and he also did much in an innovatory manner with the human voice. And he uh, was commissioned around 1911 to write a 21-cycle song cycle, and uh, it was for an actress, so somebody reciting in a rather melodramatic fashion. And these songs are depictions coming originally again in this nostalgic sense from the time of Commedia della Arte. And this idea of the clown, Piero, who is a tragic comedy figure, and what Piero's inner world is like. So inside Piero's experience, we have him moon drunk. We have him inside the moon. We have him seeing the moon. We have him terrified as huge moths fly around him. And what we seem to think is that in some way, this could have been a way for Schoenberg to represent those thoughts through Albert Giraud's poetry and then eventually in a translation 
to uh, his own personality. So some of the things that troubled him in this deep psychological sense. Now, how he achieved this was to use something called Sprechstimme, which is one step further on than the kind of what we might call Parlando style of singing that you heard in the little Debussy clip. And so I'm just going to pick one song, and usually this is with an, uh, an ensemble accompaniment. Um, but rather than singing Steig, what you would sing is Steig. So it's got this kind of sung, spoken quality in between the two. And this is uh, nearing the first, at the end of the first section. It's in three lots of seven songs, and it's about the Madonna. And I'm just going to read it to you in English translation so you get a sense of it, and then you hear the effects he's doing with a voice. So this is really revolutionary stuff. The poem is quite full on. Rise, O mother of all sorrows, on the altar of my verses, blood pours forth from withered bosom where the cruel sword has pierced it. And thine ever bleeding wounds seem like eyes, red and open. Rise, O mother of all sorrows, on the altar of my verses. And thy thorn and wasted hands holding thy son's holy body, thou'st revealed him to all mankind, but the eyes of men are turned away, O mother of all sorrows. So highly sort of surrealistic, dramatic stuff. How does he cope with this for the voice? So really something quite different to many of you will have ever heard before. Steig, o Mutter aller Schmerzen, auf den Alter meiner Verse. Blut aus deiner Mägenbristen hat des Schwertes Wut vergossen. Deiner ewig frischen Wunder Bleiken Augen rot und offen. Steig, o Mutter aller Schmerzen, auf dem Alter meiner Verse. In den abgezeten Händen hältst du deine Sonnesleichen, ihn zu zeigen aller Menschheit. Doch der Blick der Menschen meidet dich, o Schmerzen. So, completely different altogether. <laughs> but this, in effect, for classical music, opened a huge doorway. It opened a doorway about this interface of the voice and what its potentials are, screaming, crying, laughing, singing, speaking. And of course, this has been taken up by many, many composers since then. And now we have the great pleasure of Katie telling us about her own world as a composer and writing for voice. Good evening. 
I'm going to comment on music and text from a composer's viewpoint, or at least from one composer's viewpoint. I am absolutely fascinated by how composers and songwriters set text, and by that I mean how does one entwine music with text in a way that serves the words? Of course the options are limitless. Can you set bad words? Do you work with or against the words? How do you choose the words? Pop songwriters often have an innate knack of setting words in a very singable way. Also many of the great composers from the past, Schubert, as we've heard, Schumann, in a quirky way, Benjamin Britten, for example. Then there are composers who use words to serve the music. They break them up, they use them for their textural qualities rather than their actual meaning. This is also very valid and interesting. But the most haunting question to me as a composer who likes to set text to music is how do you set words that are already perfect in their own right or on their own? So com composing is about communication and composer composers are often dealing with inklings. So even without text, there's still a lot to communicate. The nuance of a phrase can be interpreted by the performer in a startling array of ways, and it's the composer's job to communicate that little inkling using all the tools available so that the performer understands the composer's intention and then can communicate that on to the audience. So it's a, a composer-performer-audience cycle. And the tools that uh, composers have to work with are simply the elements of music. Pitch, volume, rhythm, articulation, and by that I mean something as simple as an accent or, or how heavy a bow is pressed against the string as it's, as it's drawn across the string. Text is often about airing ideas and thoughts of the human mind, sometimes declarations, of, as we've heard, questions, musings, articulating feelings. Often text describes the landscape or perhaps the author's interaction with the land and interactions with each other, describing the human experience. It's often uh, one comes across a text that doesn't really need anything else, that it's quite okay just on its own. And I think as a composer, it takes quite a deal of courage to try setting this kind of text, or perhaps stupidity, I'm not sure. Um, Indoor Yachting is a poem that's a good example of this. This is a poem by Melbourne poet Chris Wallace Crabbe, and it's from a larger set of six uh, poems titled The Domestic Sublime. It describes someone standing at the end of the bed, fluffing up the sheets in the morning. It's eloquent, attractive, and succinct. I think it's quite gorgeous. It certainly did not need any additional treatment, but I just really wanted to try. Alexandra and Jacob are gonna perform it in a moment, but here are the words. Has a mere scribbler ever spotted or caught that fine dramatic gesture by which a homebody standing down at the bed end flourishes a wide clean sheet and blows it out like a spinnaker so that the far end flutters down in place where the pillow should be, once again getting it right. Have a listen out for the word painting. Uh, Jane's already spoken about word painting. This just means uh, that the music reflects the individual words. So in indoor yachting, the sheets are billowed out like a yacht spinnaker and flutter down in place.
So, once a composer has the text, what does one do with it? Lyrics often have a, well, they don't often, they have an inbuilt rhythm and that could be a good place to start. So, if I was to take the words, um, say, butternut pumpkin, I'd say butternut pumpkin, butternut pumpkin, da 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 it has, a, it has a rhythm sort of inbuilt into the words. And if I wanted the words to be clearly understood by the audience, I would be advised to work with the inherent rhythm of the words there. Another thing I could do is, uh, well, so actually sometimes it, your environment can influence how text is set. So. Uh, when my twin babies were about nine or ten months old, they were at the stage of starting to articulate the sounds mum, 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 da, 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 and that was what I was hearing at home. And about the same time, I came across a quote in the Who magazine by Olivier Martinez, who at the time was Kylie Minogue's fiance. And he had just been named the Who magazine's most beautiful person for 2004 or something like that. So I decided to set his quote to music. And uh, this is what he says. It is not a problem if people think I'm handsome. It's a quality. It is nothing I have any control over. What else can I say? I thank my mum. And because I was listening to mum, 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 mum at home, this inevitably influenced the piece. So somehow it was probably an intuitive thing. It wasn't deliberate. Uh, the word handsome, mum, 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 I thank my mum, mum, it is not a problem, mum, sort of came into it and sort of created this little miniature um, when I was at home one day. So environment can also influence uh, how, how set is text, how text is set. I like to find quirky or unusual texts, usually. I've set text from newspaper ads, Aristotle quotes, spam from my junk mail folder, and one piece comes from a ship, a, cap, a captain's ship diary from 1851 as the ship makes its way across from England to Australia. The themes I tend to connect with when I do bump into text are often about a sense of place, human connection, and noticing the little things. Juxtaposition is a powerful tool for composers and I find it helpful uh, sometimes and I've used it in this next piece. The words are extremely modern but they are treated with quite a traditional approach. It's called unnecessary. The words are by Melbourne author and cartoonist Kaz Cook. to uh, give you a sneak peek into my current work. As a person who deals with existing text but often doesn't know how to find it, 
nor create it, I decided to take matters into my own hands and I surveyed people and I used the responses of the surveys as the text for the piece, or that's what I'm currently doing. I was going to survey middle-aged women, as that's the category that I come from, but I received a grant that enabled me to expand on the project, so I surveyed all women over the age of 18 uh, and I asked them to reveal their hidden thoughts. It was an anonymous survey and I received over 200 responses to the following four questions. Do you have hidden thoughts and feelings? Tell me what they are. What have you learned to be brave about? What would you like to be braver about? And would you like to say anything else about hidden thoughts and or courage? And I'm really indebted to the women that did respond to the survey because uh, the piece, uh, the, the text is, is amazing. They are delightful, insightful, confessional, intimate, courageous, and sometimes just plain hilarious. So here's a little piece uh, performed by Stephen and Jacob. Um, it's in progress at the moment, and it's some of the responses to the questions, what would you like to be braver about, and what have you learned to be brave about? It's just a sketch, as you'll see. Um, and at the moment, it's called Brave Enough.
Ladies and gentlemen, it's five to seven, and I know that the rules are that we have to zip up and pack up and go away at seven. Does anyone have any questions or comments before we go? Yes, the back. Thanks, hi. Um, I think it was the second or third um, demonstration that we enjoyed, and there were about six or seven singers, and some were women. When that was written, would, would the performers have been women um, or all men? Um, most likely women. Um, it, it was in a secular context, so it would have been in a court setting, and um, yes, it would, have, it would have likely been women on the, on the soprano line. Thank you. Yes, um, so it's interesting that the last song, it was taken from uh, interviews with women, and yet Stephen was singing that. I mean, how, what could you say about that? Uh, so the question was that uh, the responses from the surveys were from women, and yet there, uh, Stephen was singing. Uh, the piece is written for the song company in, in Sydney, which are three males and three females, and I've decided to look at it like a, a, a narration. So whether it's the female or male voice, they're uh, representing the responses rather than being the gender, um, being the actual, singing from the point of view of the actual person. It's more from a narration point of view. 
It's a quasi uh, quirky or silly question, but do um, you think we'll ever run out of songs? Uh, there are enough combinations and permutations to always have new songs coming onto the scene. It's almost like saying, will we ever run out of words? You know, of course, sometimes words are no good. Sometimes the song's not appropriate. But I think as long as we use our vocal mechanisms, we'll sing. Whether we use words or not. Now, that would have been another interesting avenue to go down. Because there is plenty of vocal music without words. So. I would like to thank... So this evening's associate artists, so if I may name them as they come up, Jacob Avila, Alexandra Iwan, Erica Tandiono, Vivian Hamilton, Stephen Hodgson, Christopher Roach, John Waretka, and Tim Stevens. Thank you all so much.